and welcome to Zorro Month here on the Fire and Water Podcast Network. This is a special episode of FW Presents where we celebrate the legendary character of Zorro across his many comic book appearances. For this episode, I'm one of your hosts, the Irredeemable Shag. Along with me are my co-hosts, Max the Fox Romero and Ryan the Whip Daily. So how's it going, guys? Thanks for being here. Thank you for having us. Hola, caballeros. <laughs> I'm really excited about this. So, folks, if you hadn't already picked up on it from the promos, and uh, you should have already heard Mirror Factory by this point, we are celebrating uh, the beloved hero, Zorro, who is celebrating his 101st anniversary this month, which is crazy. We didn't want to be like all those other schmoes and celebrate on his 100th birthday. We wanted to do the 101st, because that's so much cooler. <laughs> so, uh, we wanted to take this opportunity and uh, really talk about a lot of different aspects. Uh, so, as we said, Max, Mirror Factory, that's already out by now, right? What do you guys talk about there? Uh, we talked about the original novel, uh, The Curse of Capistrano, later renamed The Mark of Zorro, and which was released in 1919. And uh, Ryan and I basically hashed out uh, the book, and Ryan read a passage from it. Awesome. Well, uh, folks, again, I apologize that you're having to hear, listen to Ryan two episodes in a row. Sorry about that. Hey, wait a minute. They're, they're listening to me two episodes in a row, too. I didn't apologize for that, did I? <laughs> <laughs> so uh, we're going to talk about comic books today. Then after this, we'll release a film and water episode where Rob's going to talk about the 1940 Mark of Zorro film. Then a little further along, myself and Rob are going to talk on Digest Cast about the little mini digest sizes of Zorro stories from Paper Cuts. And then finally, Chris Franklin's going to bring it home with and FW presents on the classic Zorro Disney TV show from the 1950s, which is so good. Uh, guys, let me ask you, what is your personal history with Zorro and Zorro comics? Max, why don't we start with you? Uh, well, as we kind of discussed, which everyone, I assume, listened to the latest Mirror Factory episode. They better have. <laughs> I, I don't remember a time when I didn't know about Zorro. I, I kind of just grew up with him, uh, especially the Guy Williams reruns. And it was something that was in syndication. And I just I just loved Zorro. My dad was a big fan of serials. And so he kind of introduced that to me. So I watched Zorro and I watched The Lone Ranger and I watched, you know, th those sort of things. And I have a, a deep love for him. And later, as I became, you know, more aware of my ethnic identity, I guess you want to say that, you know, I'm Latino, you know, Zorro started to mean more to me. And that's when I kind of started diving in into the comics and movies and you know everything else that he's been in because Zorro's been in a lot. Do you have any specific connection to any of the comic books? Um, you know, not really. I have to think about it. But the I think the Marvel comics that, that uh, we're going to talk about later on was probably my first introduction to uh, Zorro comics. Yeah, I, I would say that that is what it is. But again, like I said, I don't know when I was actually introduced. I know, <laughs> I know when I was about five or six, my grandmother sewed me a, a little black cape. Uh, so I could be Zorro for Halloween. That's awesome. And I still have that cape. I still <laughs> I still have it in storage. So it's yes. one of those that either Sandy asks you to wear it or she's asked you to <laughs> never wear it again. It's one of those two things. I, I don't really want to know the answer to that. <laughs> sure you do. I'll, I'll tell you later. But, <laughs> but uh, yeah, you know, and so uh, where the comics are concerned... And, you know, and I've I've told the story before about my aunt who owned a bookstore and would let me read comics as a, as a kid. And I would say that that was probably my introduction. I'm sure I read some of those. You know, no wait, it can't be the Marvel because that's too late. That's 1990. Yeah, no, no, no. It must have been Dell, maybe, probably Dell Comics that or where I first read those. So yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. You know, it's interesting, and I'll, I'll get to my own history in a bit, but just the Marvel comics, we were chatting prior to all this, um, planning out this episode, and Max mentioned the Marvel comics, and I'm like, oh, I've never even heard of these Marvel comics. So what about you, Ryan? What's your history with Zorro and Zorro comics specifically? Uh, as I mentioned on the, the Mirror Factory episode, I don't remember when or how I was first exposed to the character. For as long as I've known who Dracula was and Frankenstein and the, and the Phantom of the Opera, I feel like I I've known who Zorro was or what he was, or at least I could identify the visual, you mm -hmm. know, the, the man in black with the cape, the, the very sexy cape that Max wears for his wife and, <laughs> you know, the hat and, and the, the sword and everything. I feel like that the visual is just something that was imprinted on me like a genetic memory. I've just always known what that is. In terms of the comics, though, I, I just, I was never experienced. I never, I never saw any of them until a couple of years ago um, when, when I found out that one of my favorite contemporary artists Francesco Francavia, he did an adaptation of uh, the Isabel Allende novel for Zorro Year One, which 
was published by Dynamite, which eh, we'll talk a little bit about that a little <laughs> later on. Not in a good way, but um, yeah, I read those. Those were my first experience with Zorro Comics. Was the the year one Trail of the Fox by Matt Wagner and Francesco Francovi, and I loved it. But that was kind of it. I, it hasn't been in my view until we were kind of planning for this episode. Then I, then I got really excited because I started like looking into more of the history of these, and, and which we'll we'll cover really soon. But I would say I'm almost kind of a neophyte when it comes to Zorro comics, having really only read my first one maybe less than a decade ago. Well, you know what? If you love them, that's all that matters. You know, mm-hmm. whether, whether you've been a fan for a decade, a week, or, you know, as long as Max, which sounds like a century. So, I mean, it's any I am old. <laughs> My own personal history uh, begins, I I can tell you when, begins in the summer of 1981. And I know that because I went to the movie theater to see Zorro the Gay Blade. (laughs) So uh, I, you know, looking back now, this movie certainly wouldn't play well nowadays. A lot of horrible, horrible stereotypes in this film. But regardless of the, again, really inappropriate stereotypes, the movie's got a lot of action in it. It was a lot of fun. I thought George Hamilton, in whichever identity he was, made a badass hero, I thought Zorro was freaking awesome. With the whip and the sword, I mean, I was you know between that and then you get to uh, the fall and the new Adventures of Zorro, the animated series started right on television, and so I've got Zorro in the theater, I've got Zorro in cartoons at home. I'm running around in the backyard with sticks pretending I'm Zorro. I mean, I just absolutely fell in love with the character. And then somewhere in there, I don't know exactly when, but the the Disney, the Guy Williams show in the '50s started rerunning on I don't know some local channel, I guess, and I started watching those as well. And I don't know how long it lasted. Maybe it was a, maybe it was a year. I don't know, but somewhere I was all in on Zorro and just absolutely fell in love with the character and all of his adventures and and every every which way. And Zorro the Gay Blade eventually came to like HBO and I watched that every chance it came on. I still I can still hear the music on my head. Dun 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 dun. dun, dun. Anyway, so absolutely love the character. And then of course, uh, you know, 1998 comes along and, and the Mask of Zorro comes out with Antonio Banderas and Catherine Zeta Jones and Anthony Hopkins and that movie was amazing. So just uh, reinvigorated my love for Zorro. As far as the comics go, I I was working in a comic shop in 1993 when Topps got the license for Zorro. So I was there when the ads came out. I was super excited for it. So I was all in on the Topps comic because, you know, it started with Dracula versus Zorro and then it goes into the Zorro ongoing series. And I I just totally was head over heels for that book. And it didn't hurt that Lady Rawhide was in it. But then uh, fast forward to just a couple years ago and I was in Portland uh, for a work trip and I went into uh, Powell's Books, one of my favorite bookstores in the world. And I found on the shelf used, they were reprints by Eclipse Comics of some of the 1950s comics. Basically, it was an Alex Toth collection in black and white by Eclipse. And they were stunning. And I read those cover to cover, fell absolutely in love with Alex Toth's artwork on Zorro. And um, that's kind of where my passion comes from. Uh, That's where I've really fallen in love with is, is that classic stuff from Alex Toth. So amazing. You know, just so you're not alone on this. I also have a lot of affection for Zorro the Gay Blade. <laughs> I, I saw that when I was, I don't think I saw it in the theater, but I, I, mean, I know for sure I saw, saw it in VHS. And like you said, it was on HBO over and over. And I would even go say, go so far as to say, yes, on the surface level, it seems very not culturally aware. And it's not because, you know, it's the 80s. <laughs> but also, also uh, I would point out for anyone who is curious about it, it is on YouTube. It's Mexicans and... And gay people are never the butt of the joke. Oh, and see, I, think, I haven't seen it since probably 81 or 82. Okay. Yeah. And I think that's an important distinction with that movie. So that's good. Okay. So yeah. Yeah. I, I want to rewatch it just out of curiosity. And again, just the, the nostalgic goggles, but I am afraid that I'm just going to be cringing through the whole film, but either YouTube, way. YouTube. Yeah. Sure. <laughs> well, uh, we, we are going to get hit and start talking about some Zorro comics in a second here, but we should probably go ahead and thank our sponsors. Folks, this episode of FW presents is sponsored in part by InStockTrades.com. InStockTrades is your best online source for trades, hardcovers, and other collected editions, all for up to 42% off with free shipping for orders of $50 or more. Now, typically the way this works is we pick out something from the in-stock trades library that makes sense with what we're covering. And sure enough, there are some Zorro books out there. But Ryan, why don't you tell the people at home why we're not going to be recommending those books? So yeah, for, for a long time, about a decade or more, the publisher of Zorro Comics was Dynamite. And they did some really, really outstanding work with the character. Uh, the aforementioned uh, Zorro Year One by Matt Wagner and Francesco Francavia. So good. They did, they did a Lady Zorro. They did a team-up of Zorro and Django from the Quentin 
Tarantino movie, Django Unchained. Uh, they did a whole lot of stuff. And in a better world, I would love to recommend you go out and read any of these. But I can't because, as we found out just a couple of weeks ago, the head, the publisher, the CEO of Dynamite has been in bed uh, figuratively with Comicsgate under, under the radar. He's actually kept it secret because he knew it would be bad publicity and it would be bad for his company. But he still gave financial and personal advice and assistance to uh, the, the sort of uh, face of Comicsgate and um, was really kind of like helping them out and doing some stuff on the sly. Uh, and it's, it, I think it's really nice that once, once it became public, uh, he tried to distance himself from Comicsgate and Ethan Van Skyver threw the guy under the bus because that's kind of people <laughs> they are. So yeah, Dynamite published some really good Zorro comics, but I can't recommend you buy them because I don't want to give them any money. So my um, my hope is someday is the publishers will turn over so that we can uh, and, and they'll kind of change their direction so that I can feel good about giving them some money because those are some darn good comics. Yeah, somebody else can buy the rights to those to those same books. I mean that that happens. You know, like uh, the old like the Star Wars and Conan like d- stuff that Dark Horse used to yeah. publish. Now Marvel has those and Marvel can reprint it. So yeah. something like that can happen. So what are we uh, what are we recommending instead, Ryan? Why don't you go first? Uh, instead, to kind of keep it in the realm of the pulps and, and like old kind of classic and, and a, a visually kind of similar character, uh, something that I have recently discovered and really enjoy are these shadow, like the original shadow novels. Um, they're being published right now by Sanctum Productions as double novels. So you basically get, it's the size of a trade paperback. It looks like that on the, on the side, but it has two prose novels inside it with a few like kind of spot illustrations. And there's like 50 of these because there's like oh, almost wow. 200 of these shadowed novels and they've got a bunch of them. They've all got great cover art. I got one a couple of weeks ago and I read it and I was just really enjoying it. Um, so just as one kind of example uh, of one that I found was um, volume 87. It's the pool oh text. Gosh. <laughs> and the uh, description is the dark Avenger skills as an escape artist are showcased in two thrilling 1937 pulp novels by Theodore Tinsley and Walter B. Gibson. First, the shadow attempts to recover a stolen invention that could change the course of a future world war in the pool text tangle, a thrilling tale of espionage and escape. Then, in his true identity of Ken Allard, the Knight of Darkness attempts to stop the murderous plots of a serial killer in Death Turrets, a masterpiece of misdirection. Plus, Walter Gibson recalls his legendary mentor in Memories of Houdini. Um, so yeah, these are kind of like just the, the old pulp novels. You get two of them. And you can find these for The Shadow. You can find them for Doc Savage, uh, The Spider, um, a bunch of these things. I really like the format. The, um, the original price for these novels is like $14.95. Instock Trades has them for 25% off, $11.21. It's a really cool value. And just if you're into stuff like Zorro or The Shadow or these type of old classic pulp characters from the 20s and 30s, give these a shot. These are kind of fun. Awesome, man. That sounds great. Those names and descriptions are awesome, dude. <laughs> so I, I picked, because Alex Toth uh, is, in, in my opinion, the, the greatest Zorro artist of all time, uh, I picked The Genius, Isolated Life, and Art of Alex Toth Hardcover. So this is written by Dean Mullaney and Bruce Canwell, um, and it features throughout it lots and lots of artwork from Alex Toth. It sort of uh, focuses on uh, his earliest stories at DC in the 40s, his work at Standard. They talk, uh, apparently there's a section here where they talk about his Zorro work, which is great. They say thousands of drawings from animation studios and uh, lots of different stuff that he did in the 70s, 80s as well. So it's an uh, amazing book. I've heard a lot about these collections. It's 288 pages. Now it's a, a little pricey. Normally it goes for $49.99, but it's 30% off right now. So you can get it for $34.99. Nice big uh, hardcover, partial color because some of it's reprinting black and white stuff. So check that out. Again, Genius Isolated Life and Art of Alex Toth Hardcover. If you love Alex Toth, and you should, uh, you're definitely something you'd want to check out. And for all your trade paperback needs, please visit InStockTrades.com. Now, this episode is also sponsored in part with your Patreon support. Because, you know, running the Fire and Water Podcast Network with so many shows requires a lot of online hosting, a lot of services, and there's a lot of fees. For the past couple of years, we've been absorbing those costs, but when the costs grew exponentially, we started the Patreon, and you guys really stepped up. I can honestly say, if it weren't for the Patreon, we would not still be here. So thank you guys so very much. So, and if you're enjoying shows like this, the best way to support us is by visiting our Patreon, which is patreon.com slash fwpodcast, and consider supporting the Firewater Podcast there. And at certain sponsorship 
volunteers, you're going to get mentioned on your favorite Fire and Water shows, just like these folks, uh, David Ace Gutierrez, Gord Tolton, and a very, very special thanks to Adam Ackerman. Now, Adam is a Patreon sponsor who suggested to us that we discuss the Mark of Zorro 1940 movie. So what did we do? Of course, we turned it into a whole bunch of podcasts and got all crazy about it and fired us up to do this whole Zorro month. So thank you, Adam, for sponsoring this insanity. How do you like that, Adam? We got you Zorro all up in your face. <laughs> <laughs> Again, just visit our Patreon at patreon.com slash podcasts. So I'm going to try and trip hammer sort of quickly through uh, Zorro's comic book publishing history because the man has been everywhere, as Max said. So the earliest reference of Zorro in a comic that I could find recognized was in 1948. It was Hit Comics, number 55, published by Quality Comics. And this one's sort of fun because it actually ties back to DC Comics a little bit. In it, the character of Kid Eternity, who's known for summoning various characters, he actually summons Zorro uh, in an issue, which was actually pretty cool. Then uh, And that was just a one-off, though. But then you fast forward to Dell, which is probably... Probably the biggest name associated with classic Zorro comics. They did some stories sporadically uh, leading up to 1957. They did like just like seven appearances based on the, uh, the original novel. But then comes along the Guy Williams TV series. So in 1957, Dell got the license to create Zorro comics based on the Disney live-action TV show. They were really straight-up adaptations of the TV show. And this continued in the 60s. Uh, altogether, it was only about 20 issues, which is kind of surprising to me, considering like how fondly remembered these comics are. I mean, especially the Alex Toth artwork. But I mean, people talk about these things a lot, but really, again, only 20 issues. That's a pretty small run. And later on, uh, these same comics were reprinted by Gold Key in the mid-60s. Now, nothing really happened with Zorro in the United States for like another 20 years. However, over in Europe, Disney was still creating original Zorro comics sporadically from the 1960s to the 1980s, including the uh, the French Le Journal de Mickey. Uh, I love that name. Le Journal de Mickey, where they were creating original Zorro stories, including uh, Zorro in Old California, by, I'm going to say this wrong, Neo Dodd and Marcello? Well, I think it's Jean-Marie Dodd and Carlo Marcello. Like you did research or something I think, on that. I think it's just, it's French, but I think it's just Nadal. Maybe Nadal. But. What Ryan said. Uh, and we'll talk more about that in just a Somewhere Siskoid is just going, what? What was that? <laughs> and we'll talk more about that in a minute here. Uh, then you jump forward to 1990 Marvel Comics. Again, this is the series I didn't even know existed until Max brought it to my attention. They did a 12-issue run that tied in, at that point, with the Family Channel. They had their uh, new Zorro TV series, so it tied in with that. Then you fast forward to 1993 for Topps Comics, which, of course, you know, Topps is famous for uh, trading cards, but in the 90s, they got into comic books. And this is where I f- jumped into Zorro comics. They published uh, Dracula vs. Zorro, which was a miniseries. And uh, Ryan, I think you might be a little familiar with that. Yes. Actually, if listeners want to go back to episode five of FW Team Up, actually, it was it was almost three years to the day from oh my when gosh. this episode is coming out. Cisco uh, and I reviewed Dracula vs. Zorro from Tom's Comics, which was written by Don McGregor and illustrated by the great Tom Yates, who I met at a convention. I actually got an original Zorro sketch from him. Uh, that is a very, well, as we'll, as you'll mention, it's a very wordy comic, uh, but it's just a great <laughs> little two-issue miniseries that they did. Oh, dude, that thing was gorgeous. And it, just, it knocked my socks off when I read that. Because I remember when, hearing when it came, you know, it was being advertised, I'm like, Dracula versus Zorro? Come on, that sounds stupid. You know, oh, everybody's trying to do team-ups. And I read it, I'm like, oh, this is so good. Um, <laughs> which then led into a monthly series, which only went 11 issues. Uh, it really feels like it went longer, but that was it. I mean, of course, there was the Lady Rawhide spinoff, which that was the age of the uh, the bad girl, so that took off there. And and you mentioned Don McGregor. Now, he wrote that, but it's interesting. He stayed connected to the Zorro comics for actually quite a while. So then you fast forward after that. In the 1990s, Zorro had a newspaper strip, which I would love to see that reprinted. And uh, around the same time, Eclipse was reprinting a lot of Zorro stuff, which I'll talk about a little bit more later. Then Paper Cuts did some digests with Zorro stories, which we'll, you'll hear about on an upcoming digest cast. See, look at all this awesome Zorro talk. Then, uh, oh, we get to Dynamite. Okay. So Dynamite had the license from 2008 to 2015. We've already talked about a little bit about that, you know, the Matt Wagner stuff, which was really exceptionally well-written. Uh, beyond the uh, Django one that Ryan mentioned, there's also another team called Masks, where you actually have Zorro teaming up with Green Hornet and Kato and the Shadow and the Spider, stuff like that. Then you skip past that to the current company that has the license, which is American Mythology. They've had it since 2018, and they've uh, they've done a few different things. They've done the Zorro Legendary Adventures, which reprints classic Zorro tales 
sales from Dell and other foreign publishers, including some never-seen-before uh, stuff in English. They've also got one, uh, Zero Timeless Tales, which is still uh, reprinting some of the, the French stuff from Le Journal de Mickey. But in this case, it, the Timeless Tales is, you mentioned when Eclipse published uh, their Zorro in Old California, it was six 10-page Zorro strips from uh, the original French series. Uh, and the, the Zorro Timeless Tales is basically splitting that up into two issues with three stories each. Um, but still from the, like the same run of, uh, the, these, these French ones. So the, the Timeless Tales have been reprinted before, whereas the Legendary Adventures, uh, this is their first time in English. And the nice thing is a lot of these ones from American Mythology are actually available on Comixology. So if you can't get out of the comic shop, given the current pandemic, you can grab them right there. I've read a few of those American Mythology books. And especially for anyone who might be, you know, has any kind of affection for European style comic books, mm-hmm. uh, they're, they're, they're a really good read. They're, they're a lot of fun. As I'll, I'll talk about a little bit later, because they were published by Disney for Disney. Um, these stories are all kid friendly. I mean, there's nothing scandalous or, or that, anything that you might consider to be too mature for a young reader. These are aimed at, if not preteens, like that right around that 10, 11, 12 age range. Yeah. Now, let's be specific. That's the Zorro Legendary Adventures and the Zorro Timeless Tales. Because once you move into the other stuff from American mythology, <laughs> including the Swords of Hell uh, and Lady Zorro, not as quite kid friendly, but still, uh, I've, I've, I haven't read those myself, but I've, I've flipped through some of the solicitations and stuff, and I'm probably going to end up picking some up. Uh, and they've done several other series, and they've got more on the way. So American Mythology is really uh, trying to get the license out there, which is great. They also published this amazing hardcover that I'm just like salivating over. It's called The Mark of Zorro, 100 Years of the Masked Adventure. It came out last year, and it's just chock full of stuff about the history of Zorro and a ton of the art. It's basically an art book, and it just looks lavishly illustrated. There's a great section on comics. I am desperate to pick this thing up. And they have a couple different versions of that. You can get it in a Kindle version, you can get a physical hardcover, you can get a special collector's edition, yada, yada, yada. But anyway, check that out. So before we jump into the actual specific issues, I just want to talk about Zorro as a comic book character. Because to me, you know, what, 1919? Is that right, Max? Yeah. Yeah, that's that's when uh, the book was published. So, you know, superhero comics as we know them don't really get rolling till you know, 20, you know what, 20 years later, 1938. So I, f- I feel like there is so much of Zorro's sort of DNA in the comic book superhero. You know, the whole secret hero, fighting against tyranny, the swashbuckling adventure, smiling while you're fighting the bad guy. In fact, (laughs) this is one of my favorite bits. In the very first story that you guys covered on Mirror Factory, you know, Zorro's unmasked. You know, it's revealed to the world his identity. And then the next story that comes out, ah, forget that. Never mind. He never unmasked. We're just going to keep going. It was was the first retcon right there, man. (laughs) So, crisis on multiple Zorros. Exactly. You know, would you agree, Max, that, I mean, Zorro's DNA uh, it sort of worked its way into the comic book superhero legend. Well, I, I think Zorro has that quality that a lot of the pulp heroes have, uh, like the Shadow, and who has also enjoyed a, a, a long run in the comics. Like Doc Savage, who has not had quite uh, as successful as a, a run. Yeah, I mean, if, if you want to go back, 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 you can go back to the Scarlet Pimpernel, who you know yep. you could say was kind of a um, an influence on Zorro. But Zorro's really his own kind of thing, and it has so many of the elements, you know, the the masked man, the 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 secret identity you know, the whip, the sword, you know, these iconic weapons that were that you can't have Zoro without those weapons. And, you know, it's like we were saying earlier, you know who Zoro is. Even if you've never seen a movie, even if you've never read a book, if you see that mask, the hat, the cape, the sword, you know who that is. You're not going to mistake him for anyone else. And it, it just really lends itself to uh, a comic book setting. And, and also, uh, one of the things that really hit me when I was reading the novel uh, and we, we discussed was how much Zorro's quest, his agenda, he is a, a populist hero mm-hmm. with an agenda. He, he is a social justice cre- crusader, a, a social justice war. Like, he is fighting a corrupt bureaucratic government and the the like and really protecting the the people the disenfranchised commoners and, the, and common folk and and you know fighting this injustice and actually recruits the other rich and powerful caballeros into this league he calls them actually like these avengers to help him uh, on this goal so i mean just you talking about like baking it into the dna in like the very first issue of action comics when we see this is what superman is into he's he's you know 
a fighter. He's a defender of the people, of the common man. That he's he's going up against corrupt politicians and corrupt businessmen. The, these kind of influences that you know, it's not just about putting on a mask and going out and fighting bad people. It's what are you fighting for? Who are you there to defend? And it's about a sort of uh, this populist angle. And it's it's that's that really kind of seeps in. And I think that's what gives the character more staying power and more legs than maybe somebody like Doc Savage. Yeah. And I, I would just add on to that. Also, I think what, in, in spite of what comics likes to do nowadays, I think part of Zorro's appeal just in general, but especially in comics is just that he's you know a charming rogue. You know, he's, he's always having fun. He, he likes being Zorro mm-hmm. and, you know, to, to kind of go off what Ryan was saying. Yeah. I, if you, if you split Zorro in half, you get Batman and you get Superman hmm. because they are, they are two sides of, the, of that same coin. Well, that leads me to my next thing I want to talk about actually specifically about the influences of Zorro. Zorro directly onto Batman, or maybe even vice versa, depending on the timing and stuff. So, as you mentioned, the Scarlet Pimpernel, I mean, Zorro wasn't the first costume character, but so many of the elements that were combined within Zorro go on to be tropes of other supers, specifically Batman in a lot of ways. So, like, there's some specific items I wanted to, to target with Batman real quickly. So, you've got obviously the secret identity, and, you know, one being the Dark Avenger uh, or writer, whichever you want to say, and the other guy being the rich, sort of, uh, uh, disinterested character. So, I mean, you get that right there. And, that, and that's that's right out of the original novel. Isn't that fair to say? Yeah, yeah, that is. Okay. So you get the dark costume. You get the symbol with the Z. And obviously Batman's got his symbol of the bat. Did, did Zoro have the Z right in the first novel as well? I, I think so. He, I want to say that he put it on, like he would etch it into doors and, and things like that to as a calling card. I, I want to say that. I'm trying to remember, because I, I think he only brands Captain Ramon after he kills him. Mm-hmm. At the end with the Z, but oh, spoilers! <laughs> there's the original novel, and then there's like the Douglas Fairbanks movie that, that mm-hmm. came like a few years later. That 1920. Oh, so one year later, really. Yep. Um, and how many like uh, of these original things that we attribute to Zorro as a character as precursors came from the movie and well, were then added into the Zorro stories that Macaulay was telling later on? That's why I'm asking because the you know if if I'm reading my history right, it looks like in 1940 the Mark of Zorro with Tyrone power exploded the popularity of Zorro. Like the 1920 movie did some, but the 1940 movie just blew it, you know, way, way up. So, but and, there, and I bring that up specifically because that's actually post-Batman. So that's why I'm wondering which ones were first and which one may have came out, like say, like you said, in a 1940 situation after Batman was already around. So I'm wondering, did Zorro actually steal any ideas from Batman? For example, the cave. You know, he's they both have a cave. Well, I don't know when the cave was introduced. And so I, I, I wonder about I that. Th- think in the Fairbanks movie, but I don't know. Okay. All right. I, I think it's, it's not in the book. And, and like the other, like, like Zorro having like a companion, Bernardo is a very minor character in the original book, but I think his, his role was expanded in the movies basically to give Zorro something to talk to and give exposition to. Sure. Um, right. And then that is another big trope, the, the faith companion, Alfred and versus uh, Bernardo. So interesting. Okay. And Bob Kane, obviously he, he acknowledged that he, Zorro was a bit of an inspiration. Kind of shocking that Bob Kane gave credit to anyone, but um, <laughs> acknowledged that Zorro was an inspiration for him. And so, you know, when Frank Miller comes around and does year one, he specifically puts in, or maybe it was during Dark Knight Returns, I don't remember, but specifically puts in that they were seeing the Mark of Zorro movie. So that, uh, to, to give that nod. So uh, it's just interesting thinking about how much of Zorro and Batman have, have in common. Well, and like, like you were kind of getting at, I'm sure at some point, they started kind of influencing each other because um, I actually just saw the the, the Fairbanks uh, silent film not too long ago, and for the most part, it's pretty faithful to the book. And um, it's it's the it's a good movie. I'm not usually a big fan of silent movies, but it's a good movie. Hmm. But I can see the difference between that and the 1940 movie, which I'm sure at that point was absorbing a lot more of the pop culture that had come out since. It begins to get become like a snake eating its own tail. My, my favorite example of that is, you know, uh, Steve Ditko creates The Question in, in DC Comics, and then Alan Moore creates Rorschach for Watchmen, which is supposed to be essentially The Question in his own version of them. And then the Rorschach behavior ends up influencing how they write The Question going forward. So it, be, <laughs> it does become this sort of snake eating its own tail. So yeah, I did, I did, I think you're right. I think we probably saw some influences uh, yeah, of them just influencing each other back and forth, back and forth. 
Let's get into some comics, man. That's what we're here to talk about. So, all right, Max, why don't you start us off? Uh, you're going to talk a little bit about the Marvel series from the 1990s. Tell us about that, man. Yeah, as we discussed uh, earlier, the, in December 1990, Marvel went back to its pulp roots and uh, launched a new Zorro series. Uh, sadly, it only lasted 12 issues, uh, and it rolled off into the publishing sunset with uh, its November 1991 issue. Uh, the comics, as we mentioned earlier, were loosely based on New World Zorro TV series, uh, which helps explain the word combination in the credits because some of them will say story by adapted from script by uh when it comes to the writer's credits and that's because it was taking from uh those tv episodes ah, um, okay yeah yeah it's, it's kind of all over the place um but <laughs> one one common element is uh ian rimmer who scripted every issue and he was a writer and editor who uh, worked with marvel uk and they brought him in to do these Zorro comics. And the stories were just, you know, this mm, warm blanket of nostalgia. Uh, they caught that swashbuckling, <laughs> that swashbuckling wink of the eye charm of the classic Zorro stories. And Rimmer, I assume, brought with him a whole bunch of people from Marvel UK and from other British comic companies. And uh, which is kind of interesting when you consider that you have all these Brits who are uh, doing a really good job, actually, of realizing a romanticized version of old California. Mm. Um, and just for anyone who's keeping track, Rimmer and the letterer Stuart Bartlett are the only ones who were actually with the series from start to finish. Okay. I'll chime in there real quick. Like I, I've only read the first issue out of the 12, uh, and I enjoyed it quite a bit, but you're right. It does say story adaptation. So I did wonder if this first issue is an adaptation of an episode or if they, because there's some flashbacks in there, if they stole pieces from episodes, I wasn't really sure. Um, yeah, but- I think I think so. I think that's what happened. I think it was kind of a looser version of what, what uh, the Alex both comics did mm-hmm. uh, in that they were based on something. And at and some points they went off on their own way, but sometimes they're just straight ad- adaptations and that's reflected in the credits, but it's not really explained. Gotcha. Part of where uh, what even started me on this path was looking at the artwork. I, it feels very European. I mean, this it, in some ways it reminds me of uh, Le Journal de Mickey, uh, those stories because they just a panel design in the, in the storytelling and everything, it feels different than a, a typical America. It's certainly different than a Marvel comic in 1990. Uh, it feels feels you know a little more european it, it really does and uh mario capaldi was the artist uh up until well through issue one through six and after uh starting with with uh, issue seven that was done by david taylor and you can see the difference in the artwork but they're still both very much influenced by you by european comics and I, that might that might be why i got it confused with dell because to me it looks like a combination of uh, 2000 AD and uh, Golden Age Dell comics. Hmm. And it's a combination that works most of the time, <laughs> but maybe not all of the time. Well, that scene where Judge Dredd shoots Zorro really was kind of the dead giveaway. Yeah, well, you know, I thought that was excessive. <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, but it's 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 good. I mean, it, it's it's fun. And in Rimmer, as, as the scripter, kind of keeps his hand on the till and gives it an overall tone that I think uh, works. I think what might have been its downfall was it was not a good time for Zorro. It was, like I said, it was very, it had a very nostalgic kind of classic feel to it. And this was a year before the guys went off and started Image Comics. Mm-hmm. I was going to say in 1990, what they needed was a Todd McFarlane cover where Zorro's cape is like bigger than Ensenada. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> you know, they, they, needed, they needed gritting teeth and, and spit lines and, you know, that sort of thing. Zorro with pouches. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, so I can, I can see why, unfortunately, it didn't last longer than those 12 issues. And, and you know, I, at first I thought it might be tied to the series in some way as far as the length goes, but the series actually went four seasons. The series actually went more episodes than the classic 1950 series. And yet, I've never even seen this Family Channel Zorro TV show. Uh, my only exposure really is reading these comics. Yeah, I've never seen those either. But if uh, the show is as fun as the comics are, then, you know, I'd, I'd certainly want to watch them. I mean, I think I would want to watch them anyway, but, you know, these are fun comics. It's hard to make a bad Zorro story. Oh, I, I say that. I'm sure someone probably has. But it's like uh, the character is so exciting that I, I'd, I'd be willing to watch any Zorro. Any, you know, a sword fight and horseback riding and whips. Yeah, okay, I'll watch that. Sure. <laughs> Swashbuckling. It's, uh, it's evergreen. Exactly. 
you know, I think it's, if you're going to read these comics, the best place to start is with, at the beginning, start with issue one. One of the things I appreciate about this series is that it does not give you, it assumes you know who who Zorro is. Mm -hmm. It doesn't give you an origin story. It doesn't go, you know, back through all that. It's not, it's not Spider-Man, you know, it's not, it's not giving you the whole (laughs) thing all over again. And it starts in the middle of the action. You know, Zorro is being chased by, by soldiers and he uh, topples off a cliff, injuring himself, you know, and it looks bad enough that the alcalde, the guy who's in charge of everything, uh, the mayor, basically, uh, is uh, assumes that he's dead and leaves him there. He is not dead, and he manages to crawl over to a, to a little stream to splash water on himself. And we uh, find out that he has probably gotten a concussion and definitely has amnesia. So he remembers himself as Zorro, but he doesn't remember Don Diego. And so that carries on through the through the issue as his memory slowly comes back as he meets. Victoria, who is his his um, love interest, and Bernardo, who is uh, in this version a, a, a young child that he has adopted, and his father Alejandro, and you know the 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 cast of characters is there. Some of them have different names, but everyone is there. And this is how the comic introduces us to this new version of Zorro. Is as Zorro rediscovers these people as he's regaining his memory, which I think is a you know pretty clever way to do it. And, uh, you know, of course, by the end, he, you know, Zorro remembers who he is. He, <laughs> in, a, in a classic bit of Zorroism, the alcalde wants to display the body of Zorro to, to uh, show his triumph. But they assume the body has been eaten by animals. So they make a wax dummy <laughs> of Zorro to put on display. <laughs> but what they don't know is that Zorro has replaced the dummy with himself. And when they're getting ready to display it, he pops up, you know, which basically scares the crap out of everybody. And, you know, <laughs> Enrages the, enrages the alcalde and he you know ends with a, with a sword fight and of course he gets away and with a renewed sense because one of the things that's going on is Diego wonders well Zorro wonders if this is all that there is to his life if Zorro is going to take over everything that he is until uh, Don Diego doesn't exist anymore and it's just Zorro but by the end he has uh, gotten kind of renewed faith in his mission and and that's where it picks up from and that's how it goes into the next issues and i think it's interesting because in the last issue uh which is basically kind of a mexican uh california version of it's a wonderful life uh, because uh in that one it's it kind of brings it all full circle because zorro is again questioning whether or not he's doing any good as zorro and whether the world needs a zorro and this angel or spirit or saint you know they never really make it clear what he is uh comes to visit him and shows him a world without Zorro. And again, he renews his mission uh, to help the downtrodden, to help people. And, uh, you know, it's a nice little cap on this 12 issue series. Awesome, man. This sounds really good. I mean, I really enjoyed the first issue, and I, I'm glad you mentioned the amnesia thing. Because when I first started reading the issue, and like he gets beat up, and he's laying there dying, and he's got amnesia, I'm like, is this? And it actually went through my head, is this actually the way to start a series off? Because like, <laughs> yeah. this isn't really him showing him at his best. But then it, it became clear why they were going down that path, and, I, and it was nice because I really did feel like I got to know the characters. And for a long time, Zorro readers, uh, you know, getting to know the cast characters is important because these are different from the Disney series, which is who most people know. So uh, I think it was nicely done. And again, I love the artwork. And again, it does have a European feel, but that that, that was part of the attraction for me. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I totally agree. I mean, I think, I, I doubt that it, I haven't checked, but I doubt that they've been collected in any real form. And uh, good luck finding these in back issue bins. But I, I assume you can. I've, I've found a couple here and there. Uh, it's it's worth it. it it's worth uh, digging them out. And they've got some nice covers. The last two uh, issues, 11 and 12, because uh, usually they were done by whoever the artist was and, uh, you know, whoever the interior artist did the covers. And they were some nice, you know, some pretty striking covers. Mm-hmm. But uh, issue 11 and 12 were actually done by the master himself. They were done by Alex Toth. Uh, I'm not sure if that was like a last minute bid to try to save the series or or what exactly that was but those are some gorgeous covers also. I mean, even issue 10 before he starts coming, like 10 is a great one. The, the, the forest is on fire and Zorro is leaping over a building. It just looks great. And yeah. then, yeah, the, the Toth covers. That's a mind if I cut in. That's hilarious. Yeah, um, I, I could actually see these maybe being, I mean, along with, with Toth's work,
work, obviously. But I, I wouldn't be surprised if if uh, Franco Villa was was uh, influenced by some of these covers because they they are very striking, very yeah. iconic. In fact, this uh, number twelve, uh, which is a really great cover, by the way, yeah. that may be the last time he drew Zorro professionally because I don't know because he did stuff in '88 for Eclipse, but I don't know when else he would have done stuff uh, for Could Zorro because that would have been '91 mm-hmm. by then. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Wow. Well, good stuff. Thanks for walking us through that, man. And it's a it's a nice little hidden gem that uh again I didn't even know existed until you brought it up. I, I've been for the last couple of minutes. I've been trying to imagine like a like '90s Marvel trying to like save this series by making Tornado like a cybernetic horse and, <laughs> and giving giving Zoro like a Z shaped tattoo over his right eye that just like has oh, like God. green fire coming over it and just yep. like I, I cracked a joke about pouches, but really they would have put it on the saddlebags. Imagine the saddlebags <laughs> on Tornado. That would have that would have been insane, dude. <laughs> and and of course you know sometimes you see Zoro. I mean obviously the sword and the whip. But sometimes you see Zoro with a musket. Well, could you imagine a Marvel '90s style musket? Like it would have had like six barrels and you know <laughs> three feet wide and t- you know giant magazine of, of extra bullets or something. It would have oh, like man. fired Z shaped shrooken or something like that. <laughs> now oh, I want to see this, Ryan. <laughs> you know, maybe canceling it at twelve issues was a mercy killing. Maybe right. it's all for the best. <laughs> well, it seems very Family Channel what Ryan's proposing. So uh, anyway, so Ryan, why don't you tell us a little bit about Zoro? in old california yeah so uh going back to what we were talking about in the beginning uh, after after the 1950 series by dell disney continued to publish zorro original zorro stories but not in english uh they were published in le journal de mickey this french uh, magazine with the, the team most of them were done by jean-marie nadeau and carlo marcello there were a few other artists who came on too uh in 1985 eclipse got the rights to republish uh six of these stories in one issue called Zorro in Old California. They were translated into English. Those six stories have now been purchased by American Mythology, as we mentioned, and have been re- are published in Zorro Timeless Tales. Uh, so the story that I'm going to mention, you can either find it in Zorro in Old California, if you can find that old uh, Eclipse book, or you can go to Comixology and find American Mythology Zorro Timeless Tales Issue 1. The last story in that edition is Double Agent. Uh, and the story is pretty simple, but you've got, you know, the, the dreaded Captain Manasario, uh, who's, you know, this evil corrupt captain who is basically laying waste to this little village and arrests uh, a man who he thinks is a spy. Uh, he has no, you know, credible evidence to support this, but he's a corrupt politician. He doesn't need the reason. So he takes this this um, this uh, Lopez away and Lopez's kid's sister, Antonia, is very upset by this. So upset that she goes to see Captain Montessori at or his office and attempts to assassinate him. She actually brings a gun and tries to shoot him. He dodges uh, and then with her, in order to spare her life, kind of concocts this trap to lead Zoro to his death. So when she as a prisoner is being transported, Zoro tries to rescue her. She makes them like she is going to kill Zoro. Then she reports back to Montessori and says, yes, I killed Zoro. I stabbed him. I pushed him off the cliff. You can see his body. They see a body that they think is Zoro. Meanwhile, she's actually hatched this plan with Zoro, who is sneaking around in disguise back at, at the, the village. And uh, he, through cover of darkness, he ends up rescuing her brother from jail. And Zoro escorts Antonia and her brother to the docks, basically, so they, they can get away on a boat. And he has a little sword fight uh, with Captain Montessario. Uh, and I picked this one just because I love how, they, there's a, again, these are written for a younger younger audience. Uh, they're, they're Disney stories. And there's a very kind of sweet and wholesome effect at the very end when Antonia, just before she gets on the ship, she says, you know, El Zoro. I, I believe I figured out who your secret identity is and I would like to whisper it in your ear. And he kind of leans in close to her and she just gives him a very friendly kiss on the cheek. And, and it's kind of, it's this sweet little ha 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 type of thing. Um, and then she gets on the boat and, and he rears back on his horse and, and waves her, bits her, you know, via Candias. And it's it's a fun little story. And I think these type of Zorro stories, you know, if you've got 
you know, kids, young readers, somebody who wants to get in, who you want to expose to this kind of thrilling adventure fiction, but you don't want anything too controversial or too spicy. I think these are, are good, clean, swashbuckling Zorro stories that you could give to an, I would say all ages, but I mean, there's certainly, it's not, you know, what you would confuse with like an American all ages comic today. I mean, getting into the European sensibility, these are fairly dense for 10 page stories. The each each page has like eight to nine panels and a lot of dialogue, um, so it, it feels like it's cramming in a lot of story in just a few pages, but still a lot of fun and pretty easy to digest. Well, I, you say there's a lot of dialogue, but the nice thing is it's it's not overwritten. As an example, we'll talk about in just a minute. Uh, it, it's still an easy breezy read. I read this particular mm-hmm. story in advance. It's super fun. Now, yep. do me a favor. Go to page. Seven of that story, uh, if mm-hmm. you can, and while you're flipping there, I'll just talk a little bit about it. One of the things I really like about this Eclipse reprint is the colors are gorgeous, man. I don't know whether this was done painterly, like someone painted the colors, or whether it was done digitally. I don't know, but the colors are just beautiful and they blend perfectly. And, and just to give you an example of some of how some of the amazing artwork in here. So on page seven, if you look at the top middle panel, look at Commandante Montessario just screaming, it's like, "You <laughs> idiot! Saddle up with the guards!" And he just he looks terrifying. He, he mm-hmm. just the, the illustrative quality of this artwork on essentially a kid's throwaway Mickey Mouse magazine <laughs> uh, is really impressive to me. Yep. And uh, I've read a few of the other stories in here. Yeah, it's, and the nice thing is, too, if you were a fan of the Guy Williams show and you read any of the Alex Toth stories, which I'm going to go on ad nauseum about, you've already seen the story. Whereas this, these are new original stories, something we didn't get in the States. We didn't get original. Well, we got a couple, but not many. And, and here, they were tons of them. It's not the exact likeness of all of them. I mean, this, this Zorro is sort of generic and Enough that, yeah, it could be Guy Williams, but it could be really anybody. Um, but certainly the, the Sergeant Garcia looks identical to the yeah. actor who played him in the TV show. Like, they, they've got the flop sweat down perfectly. <laughs> So yeah, I, I think uh, these are great. And um, American Mythology is reprinted. And you, Ryan, you said he's reprinted some of these, right? All of the ones that were reprinted by Eclipse have been reprinted as Zorro Timeless Tales. And then Zorro Legendary Adventures, which I think they're, they, they did two four-issue miniseries. So it's like two different volumes. So I think there are eight issues of Zorro Legendary Adventures. And I think each one has two stories um, that have not been printed before now. Between all of these you can get you can get a good selection of like you know almost 30 stories or something from these uh, uh original french tales and i think you use the right word swashbuckling i mean it's really what these are like the the assassin story has this giant chase through a city with it where zoro's trying to save the governor and everyone's trying to kill him and stuff i mean it's, mm-hmm. it's exciting stuff it's fun well, I am going to, uh, for my section, I'm actually going to touch on two different lines of Zorro comics. The first one I'm just going to mention briefly, it's Topps Comics. Again, this came out in 93, and we talked about a little bit already, but just some of the things I want to mention about it. Like, we mentioned Don McGregor wrote them. Uh, Mike Mayhew was the artist on these, and he was really great. When he was restrained, let's put it that way, when he was restrained, his artwork was really beautiful. Like, the first issue especially is really great. It's this, it's this story of Zorro rescuing this woman, uh, and they end up battling this bad guy, oh, across a volcano. I mean, it's really, it's like a giant big budget action movie. It's a lot of fun. It's very exciting. Um, the only downside to it is it is overwritten. Um, there's way too much prose. Don McGregor writes a great damn story and he's really trying to set the mood with a lot of, uh, of caption boxes and stuff like that. But uh, when you guys did Fire and Water Team Up, Ryan, I think you mentioned about Dracula versus Zorro. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's too much. There's, there's too, <laughs> too many words. Um, but uh, I, I, uh, so, like uh, that, that goes back to, I mean, if you've ever read Don McGregor's legendary run on Jungle Action where he was writing Black Panther, I mean, he was writing like a, a thousand page novel that just got <laughs> transcribed into like 12 issues of Jungle Action. I don't think Don McGregor was really wanted to write comics or he shouldn't have been writing comics. He was really more suited to either writing novels or writing screenplays or teleplays. Uh, he, he had this detectives incorporated uh, script for, um, for, uh, I think it was eclipse too. And like those stories, he was, he was just writing a crime series, like a crime TV show or a crime movie that I don't know if he just, he did 
didn't have the budget to film it himself. So he gave it to Marshall Rogers and Gene Colan and they made comic books out of them. But like, it's like, I, I, I think he was, just, he might've been feeling like he was just slumming in comics, but that's not where his strengths were. I'm sorry. This is a weird Don <laughs> McGregor tangent. That has nothing to do with Zorro, but. Well, I, I, and I sound like I'm bagging on the series. I'm, I really don't mean to, it, it is really great to read and he really does set the mood. I mean, you really feel like you're there with, with, with how much explanation of the setting it is, but it just, it, 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 get, it weighs it down a little bit. So, <laughs> but after you get past the first couple issues is where you do start to see some of that nineties influence. Like, uh, you get, you get different covers, uh, you get specialty covers, you get Frank Miller covers, you get Jay Lee, Adam Hughes, Mike Grell, George Perez, Mike Mignola. So you get a lot of big name creators. And then after a while, some of the action does get a little crazy. It does get a little over the top. It does feel a little nineties ish after a while. Now, all credit to Don McGregor, though, he was really trying to create a world around these characters. You know, it wasn't just Zorro. He introduced uh, Machete, which was a bad guy, who was actually kind of interesting. He introduced uh, an ally for Zorro named Moonstalker. And then he introduced Lady Rawhide. Again, it's the 90s, so there had to be a bad girl. And she's pretty much just running around in, like, the smallest lingerie you can imagine, running around the rooftops of uh, Los Angeles, which is a little crazy if you think about it, but whatever. It, it, It gave Adam Hughes a chance to draw a super sexy cover, and that's what, you know, what sells the book at that point in the 90s. I'm but, sure he needed an excuse for that. Right. <laughs> the Probably the most interesting thing to me, though, about this Topps book, well, it's not the most interesting, it, it just an interesting thing, is that to, in the Topps book, they actually use the Disney bad guys. They use Commandant Montessario and Sergeant Garcia, and the likenesses are dead on. It's not like they're just using the names, which is weird because nowhere in the book do they credit Disney, and I'm not exactly sure how they even got the rights to use those characters because no other Zorro series does outside of the Disney stuff. I guess it went with the license, you know, maybe, or nobody was just paying attention. I don't know. There is a, a Zorro, I think it's called Zorro Incorporated, which is like a parent company which has the rights to Zorro, and they seem to monitor the license pretty closely, so I don't know, maybe they gave him permission. I'm not really sure, but it's just interesting that every other Zorro book comes up with their own bad guys, but tops uh, continue with the Disney stuff. Hmm. It's interesting that you mentioned that, too, because it, I mean, starting with, with the original Curse of Capistrano book, it, it, seem, it seems every time someone gets their hands on the Zorro uh, license, you know, for some reason, Zorro stays the same, more yep. or less, but everyone around him gets a new name or you know it's the same <laughs> character yeah but I, I don't know i don't know what the compulsion is to uh to start giving everyone a different name or in a, in a slightly different job yeah bernardo became a kid felipe in one felipe, series yeah. and the dad i think the dad's gone through a few different permutations as well like sometimes mm-hmm. the dad it was zorro you know things like that yeah well and in the in the marvel 90s comic uh lolita who was basically a young woman who didn't do much because you know she was you know that women weren't expected to do anything in those days you know they were expected to stay home and get married uh, which is kind of the plot point in that book but uh in the 90s marvel book uh she is named victoria and she owns the tavern in town Mm, so but you know but like i said they play the same role but for some reason those names change even though their their purpose doesn't well i I just want to make sure i it sounds like i'm bagging on the tops comic i don't really intend to it it is well worth your time Uh, it's a lot of fun there's some great stuff in there uh so definitely check that out but let's Let's move on to what I really want to talk about, folks, which is Alex Toth drawing freaking Zorro, which is what you've all been waiting for. Uh, <laughs> so you you could have read any any number of Zorro tales by Alex Toth in either the the Dell comics in nineteen fifteen you know like nineteen fifty nine era. Uh, those were called four color comics at that point, and then Gold Key or Western reprinted them in a, the Walt Disney Zorro series, and then they've been re- we mentioned a few other places that reprinted. Now for me, I'm holding in my hands uh, the complete classic adventures by Alex Toth. Zorro, uh, Volume One and Volume Two. These were printed by Eclipse Comics in 1988. And here's the beauty thing about beautiful thing about this: it's done in black and white, so you can really see Alex Toth's artwork. And they hired Alex Toth in 1988 to go back over and do gray tones on his 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 artwork. So it's given some depth and some um, some you know sort of different highlights and stuff and shadowy effects. And it is freaking gorgeous. I mean, I I I will go on record against anybody here. This is the way to read Alex Toth. Zorro comics. So look, if you can find the Eclipse reprints uh, in, in those two volumes, I cannot recommend it highly enough. Uh, if I can just jump in here really quick. No. I think I have, I, I'm going to do it anyway. <laughs> I, think I, I think I have the same collection, but mm-hmm. the one I have was put out by Image in 2001. Oh, okay. Uh, and it's also, it's also black and white. It's also the complete Adventures of Alex Toth. Does it have the grayscale? Yeah, it has the grayscale. Oh, yeah. 
There you go. And it has an introduction actually by Howard Chaikin. Yep. yep. Um, yeah. So I think it's probably the same thing you have just image published it in 2001. And so that might be a little easier to find in the eclipse. Absolutely. Yeah. There's also one you can get it on comiXology. It's called Zorro, the complete Dell comics adventures. Um, and it has it now it's in color. Uh, and it's, it was Ooh. actually, I don't know if it's a print by <laughs> Hermes press. But it does have like the whole Alex Toth run, and it's really good. So, yeah, I, I'm going to agree with with Shag here, which is something I hate to say out loud. <laughs> but, uh, the, the Alex Toth artwork just looks so good in black and white, mm-hmm. yeah. so good. And, and I didn't realize how much the grayscale really added to it. Oh my gosh, it just makes everything pop so nicely. So um, now you mentioned uh, Howard Chaikin has an intro, introduction exactly right in volume two. Actually, has an introduction by Alex Toth himself, and it's interesting reading these, hearing them talk about it, and really uh, Chaikin highlighted. I'm going to steal some Chaikin work here, of course, because why not? He steals from porn stars. I can steal from Chaikin. So <laughs> Chaikin described the, some of the things that make Alex Toast's artwork so good. He said he talks about the staging and the placement of the figures and the objects in the space available. Until you hear that, it's like, you know you like Alex Toast, at least for me. I knew I like Alex Toast's artwork, but I couldn't tell you why. It, just, it looks so pretty. But if you look at the way he uses the space and where he puts the figure and what's in the foreground and what's in the background, it's amazing. Um, his use of heavy, heavy heavy shadows and then different various blacks and things like that just really uses it to make things uh, work. He uses so few lines, you know, it's not like there's a, I mean, certain sometimes, yes, he'll draw a lot of stuff, but a face only has a few lines and you know exactly what's going on. He's so amazing with the dynamic fluid motion. I mean, the way Zorro moves and his cape fluttering, it's, it's just absolutely gorgeous. And he, you know, he captures the likenesses pretty darn well. I mean, there's sometimes I'm like, I was reading this and I haven't seen all these episodes, but I'm reading and I can look and go, Oh, I know who that guest actor is that episode because the likeness <laughs> is that good. Uh, and also, I'm not going to lie, he draws some very beautiful women as well. So um, I'm going to go ahead and cover a specific story called The Eagle's Brood. And that is, uh, if, if you're getting these reprints, it's in volume two. It kicks it off. And it's 26 pages. It actually retells two different TV episodes, uh, The Eagle's Brood and Zorro by Proxy. I specifically did not watch these episodes in advance reading this because I wanted to see what it was like just reading this adaptation without having having watched the episode. And it, it works perfectly. It's part, it, I, I don't need the TV episode. It's so bar- perfectly put together. You get a, a lead-off page, which just kind of describes the origin of Zorro, which is a great jumping-on point for someone. Now, here's the recap. I wrote a little bit of a longer recap, so forgive me, but it's um, it's kind of hard to encapsulate what's going on here. So, when the story starts off, a secret cabal of traitors have taken control of Northern California, and now they plan to expand and overtake the military presidios in Southern California. They're led by the big bad of this part of the, the series at this point, a mysterious man known as the Eagle. And they've managed to steal nearly all the gunpowder from the surrounding presidios, and they plan to use Los Angeles as their base as they strike out against the other cities. Now, later on in Los Angeles, the uh, the goofball Sergeant Garcia is uh, acting commandante at this point, because the Capitan is out of town, and while the Capitan's wife, Raquel, stays behind. Then these two men arrive in town who we haven't met before. They've recently purchased the tavern, men named Quintana and Fuentes. And these dastardly men, it turns out they secretly work for the Eagle and are planning to smuggle the stolen gunpowder into Los Angeles. And the Capitan's wife, Raquel, is revealed to also be working with the Eagle. Dun-dun-dun. So Don Diego deduces that something's amiss. And then as Zorro, he attempts to intercept the wagon smuggling the gunpowder into Los Angeles. However, Zorro must flee because Sergeant Garcia arrives. And the dastardly men trick Garcia that they're carrying wine. So of course Garcia escorts them to the Pueblo in exchange for some drinks. Uh, these kegs of gunpowder are unloaded and placed into the tavern's cellar, where Zorro later secretly removes them. Quintana and Fuentes are shocked and furious when they discover that the gunpowder is now missing. Now Raquel convinces Sergeant Garcia and his soldiers to go searching for Zorro, hoping that they'll actually find the stolen gunpowder. And the soldiers do nearly find Zorro, but he uses his horse Toronado to, dis- uh, to distract Garcia. Later, Raquel and her men, they cook up, quite frankly, what is a very complicated and confusing plot to catch Zorro, because that's how this thing works. It all has to do with uh, arresting Don Diego under the suspicion of actually secretly being Zorro, but they're saying he's not. It's, it's a, it makes your head spin a bit. But, you know, hey, it's 1950s TV, and it's all about basically the whole Clark Kent Superman kind of stuff. But anyway, that night, uh, Tornado helps uh, Don Diego escape from his cell. And as Zorro, he then confronts Sergeant Garcia, managing to clear Don Diego of any suspicion, and he makes a deal with Garcia to escape. The next day, as promised, Zorro turns over the gunpowder to Sergeant Garcia, who then returns it to the Northern Military Presidios, and Garcia takes all the credit for its recovery and saving California. 
So again, it's a little bit long, but it's a great story. It's a lot. I mean, it really the stakes are high. I mean, the entire country's at risk. I mean, the entire uh, all of California is at risk here. So the stakes are high. The the art again, Alex Toth, man, come on, this is just stinking gorgeous. And I haven't said this yet, but we will have some of these panels from all of these books, various books, up on our gallery page for you to check out. And that is at fireandwaterpodcast.com. Go to the FW Presents page, and you'll find this episode of Zori. You'll find a gallery there. But I mean, again, the action is awesome. The horseback, the horseback riding is beautiful. Uh, Tornado is just awesome, raging through the the through the desert. And uh, this whole plot of Don Diego uh, saving the day by getting this gunpowder from the eagle and these men is really really impressive. Have either of you guys read the story by chance? I, I've read it for the in preparation for this one, yeah. Because I, I this was <laughs> this was actually a collection that I had been waiting to get, and like just like a, eh, am I going to get around to reading this? And then once we kind of decided to to pull the trigger and do this Zora month event, I was like, all right, yeah, I'm going to get this. So I I got the collection on Comicsology. So I did read this, and yeah, it's an enjoyable story. And the way you talked about uh, Toth's art and everything, I it, I completely co-signed. He has such an economy uh, of of style like what he seems to do a lot with a very little like with very sort of minimal like like the lines on the on the faces and everything and it's sort of i, well, I mean i guess it, it sort of speaks to his um his work with animation and, and like the series that we yeah, love yeah. Like those DC series, because I, w- I would say like i can see i can see the through line from his zorro adaptations here all the way up to bruce tim's dc animated universe and darwin cook and and like sort of like the disciples and the people like that and um uh, mike parabek and like guys like that who have that, that sort of similar style that that seems very efficient a little bit middle it's just it's it doesn't have the overly rendered overly lined details of a lot of people that have been coming out like more prominent in the last couple of years it seems very slight but you get all of the information and it just makes it so good so it's yeah it's breathtaking it's beautiful artwork david mazicelli always comes to mind for me when yes, i look at alex's yeah. stuff yeah yep. absolutely beautiful now max i know you're a fan of toth uh, zorro right i am i am a big fan of um you know his artwork is just it sounds so cliche to say it, but it, it's just so classic. But at the same time, what's so great about Toth's artwork is that it is also very distinct. And in a way, I mean, the artwork is not, uh, you're not going to confuse one for the other, but he kind of reminds me of uh, Evan Doc Shanner mm, in, the, okay. in the sense that it's a very simple line, but it's very effective in getting across characterization, action, body language, uh, just everything. And it it is deceptively simple, I think, because, you know, like you guys were talking about animation and it, it kind of feels uh, as if he does things with an idea of staging in mind. All, all the space that's being used or not used, and you know, if you're talking about negative space, it's on purpose and it's not obvious. It's not, uh, he's not hitting you over the head with it or anything, but it is there and it's it's extremely effective. And, you know, just, I, I haven't read this story in a while. I, I read, you know, of course I when I first got this book, I tore through it. But looking through it again, it, this is an especially good example of, of Toth's work because of, you know, half the scenes are in shadow. Mm-hmm. And with the way it's drawn and then the way it's screened, it just, you you feel like you're out there on that California night, you know, and, the, and, the, and Zorro is, you know, slinking through the shadows. And it, it's just... It's just a gorgeous, gorgeous book. And this is a, an especially good story t- to see uh, Toth really kind of flexing his muscles. It's interesting. In reading the introduction by Toth himself on volume two, well, I should back up a step and say, going into this, the research for this episode, I didn't even realize these were adaptations of episodes of the TV show. Um, and I realized in hindsight, kind of stupid, I should have, but I just never picked up on it. I just like, these are amazing Thor story. I love these. <laughs> They're so good. I did the same thing. I was just really enjoying them. And then as I did the research, I'm like, oh, these are all all adaptations. And as you read Toth's uh, story in, he, in our introduction, he talks about how frustrating it was actually because the scripts were coming from the people doing the TV show. And he said the scripts were horribly overwritten. There was so much text. And he's like, this could be done so much more efficiently. And he was like super frustrated working on this book, which you would never know from the, what the amazing work that he turned out. But so he, he went through a lot of frustration there. And one of the things I did notice in, again, doing more research, towards the back of the book, there are some original stories that are not adaptations. There are not many of them. Most of them are usually like six pages or something like that. And, and I'm sure Toth didn't write them. I'm sure someone else wrote them. But 
but you, I do feel like, and maybe I'm just kidding myself. I do feel like there's a little bit of difference in those because it, you know, they're not working from the TV format. And I feel like sometimes when I read those, I'm like, oh, you know, this feels more like a comic book adventure. Um, there's a particular one called Runaway Witness. Uh, now that's one of the larger ones. I think that's 22 pages or something like that. And uh, it's a great story that wasn't done in the TV show, as far as I know. And uh, it, you can, I just feel like Toth sort of operated in this story a little bit differently than he did in the others because he maybe he felt like he had a little more freedom without being tied to the TV show. Overall, every single story in here is worth reading. Uh, it's absolutely mm-hmm. phenomenal. One of the things that's interesting too about the that um, intro that Toth wrote was something that we're talking about. We we you know we're, we're talking about how much these uh, grayscales work and how uh, the shadowing is is so good. He apparently did it himself, and he was not happy with it. He apolog- he he spends like a paragraph apologizing <laughs> for the for the screens and. Uh, you know, that's just, um, you know, I guess, you know, typical genius because, you know, <laughs> to me, it looks gorgeous. And, you know, to him, he's he's uh, nitpicking it. Yeah. He's, he's frustrated with his own earlier artwork. It's like, yeah, I just I didn't feel like I captured the cape properly. And I'm like, yeah, you did. It looks awesome. <laughs> exactly. So I, so I had a little argument with Alex. Toe, so, uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, guys, I mean, they, those are just a smattering of various Zorro comics you can check out. We, we rattled off a whole bunch of them. There's a lot of them available in your local comic shops. There's a lot available digital. Uh, get out there and try the new American mythology stuff. You know what? Support the people who have the license right now. Why not? And you know, stay tuned to the Fire and Water Podcast Network. We've got a, a lot more Zorro coverage to go. Um, we recapped it at the top of the show. We've got an ad out there. You can figure it out. Go find it. But in the meantime, why don't you guys uh, real quickly tell people where they can find you uh, either on the network itself or in Zorro Month? Uh, you can find me as the host of Cheerscast, Fire and Water Records, and Midnight the Podcasting Hour, and Batman Nightcast. And Ryan is uh, party crashing almost every single one of these Zorro episodes, by the way. I have nowhere else to go. (laughs) (laughs) Max, where can they find you? Uh, They can find me right here on the network. I do the Mirror Factory podcast, a literary podcast, and also on uh, Plasticast, which is a uh, podcast dedicated to Plastic Man. As I said earlier, you should have listened already to the Zorro episode of Mirror Factory. Obviously, you're listening to me now. And um, I will also be talking to uh, Rob about the 1940 Mark of Zorro movie. Awesome. That's fantastic. Well, folks, we want you to go out on the social media. So please go out to Facebook, Twitter, tag us. Let us know maybe some of your favorite Zorro comics, maybe some of your favorite Zorro artists, um, just different things that you've jumped out of you or maybe your origin story with Zorro comics. We'd love to hear it, man. Be part of the conversation or leave comments on our website at fireandwaterpodcast.com uh, and it's at the uh, FW Presents uh, show feed. So, I think that's going to do it. I, you know, you know, Lone Ranger says like, "Hi ho, Silver." I don't know that Zorro has like a uh, an amazing sign off. Am I forgetting something? No, but I think you can get away with "Viva Zorro" <laughs> and the whip. 